Frank Sinatra famously sang the lyrics of Paul Anka. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I did it my way. This memorable line is, I think, maybe a fitting anthem for our times. It celebrates the world's spirit, which prioritizes the freedom of self-determination. I determine my own beliefs, my values, and my lifestyle. I determine what works for me and what does not work for me. I accept who I am and I reject my any expectation or demand that others might press upon me. If my swan song can be, I did it my way, then I've truly lived. I've reaped the rewards that luck was willing to hand to me, and I've charted my own course. Our gathering this Lord's Day announces that the Sovereign Christ has liberated us from the bondage of such a way of thinking. Eden Baptist Church is a counter-cultural community that rejects the mantra of doing it man's way. By Jesus' death to pay the penalty of our rebellion against God and His law, by Christ's resurrection power, we are redeemed to synchronize our lives to God's way. And I encourage you this morning to consider how fundamental and also how revolutionary this really is. We have been gloriously liberated by Jesus from the inward-focused quest to synchronize our lives to self-determined desires. And we have been liberated by Jesus to calibrate our lives to God's external Word and to His glorious worth. That's no small thing. And I encourage us also to consider the untold blessings that attend such a Godward orientation in life. When we synchronize our lives with God's Word, the riches of His goodness flow into our lives. This is no coincidence Our Heavenly Father created us to experience such joys in fellowship with Him. And He loves us enough not merely to suggest this way of life, but to demand it. Knowing that His Word is our life and fellowship in His presence is our soul's ultimate delight. So having revealed to Israel how God's people may approach Him in His holiness at the tabernacle... We come back to Leviticus today and to chapter 26, which offers now a final appeal for Israel to respond faithfully to what God has laid out in His Word. Israel must choose. She can worship God and heed His Word, or she can do it all her way. In this chapter, Leviticus 26, God provides wave after wave of motivation For Israel to choose God's way, not her own way. Leviticus 26 and verse 1 begins with the fundamentals of God's law in the first two verses. 
Leviticus 26, 1, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. This is a fundamental of life in God's presence, and we must capture it. No idols, no images, no sacred pillars, no figured stones. That is, stones with figures etched into them, possibly. All four of these words reflect the practice of the nations that were surrounding Israel. There was to be no pictures or sculptures of God on the one side of the coin, and on the other side of the coin, of course, there was to be no worship of false gods in these ways or in any other way. The point of it is, as we set our rudder by Scripture, is that God fashions man in His image. Man does not fashion God in His image. This is the very essence of false worship. Pressing God into the mold that is acceptable to us. Or choosing a God out of the pantheon to do what we want that God to do. No other gods. And no depictions of me because those depictions will certainly become a source of worship. It's really amazing as we look at this instruction to Israel. As rebellious as Israel would prove to be, archaeology has uncovered, at least to this point, no images or depictions of Yahweh. Israel got this point, at least. When Israel worshipped idols, what we find is that she worshipped the idols of the nations. At least on this point, no images of Yahweh. Israel got it. There was no worship of God in another direction. God was preparing. God was preserving His people for the only one who would exactly bear God's image, our Lord Jesus Christ. And anything else would get in the way. No idols. No images. No figured stones. No pillars erected, whether in piles of stone or one tall stone. None of this. I am spirit, and those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. The second fundamental is you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. This, in a sense, epitomizes the whole law. You will observe the Sabbaths. It's not, again, just the one weekly Sabbath, but all of the Sabbaths that he has laid out in these preceding chapters. You shall observe them. Two central features of the law. Devotion to the worship of God alone. Devotion to God in Sabbath worship. And while much has changed under the new covenant, this has not. Here we are today. Gathered as a family of faith, worshiping God, resisting idolatry. Saying to the gods of this world, He is our God. This is our God. Christ is our Savior. And gathering together, taking this time away from normal routine to remember this truth and to grow in our knowledge of our Savior. Here we are today. The wall of protection around our souls is made up of these two emphases. No idols and gathering for worship. God sets this in place for Israel and He sets this in place for us who have come to faith in Christ. No other gods 
gathering in his presence with his people to worship. This puts a wall around our soul that protects it from the assaults of this world and its way of thinking. Now as we come to verse 3 and on through verse 13, we find a section in this text of blessings for obedience to God's law. What is a blessing? Under terms of the Mosaic Covenant, it is a physical prosperity. It is enrichment from God. Much of it is physical. But a blessing is the grace, the goodness of God poured into the lives of His people. It is life picking up the drippings of God's grace as we stand in His presence. The blessings of God's law. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The key here in verses 3 and 4 is obedience to God's external word. Remember in Exodus 19, Israel has already agreed to the terms of the covenant. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is Israel's word from Exodus 19 at the the foot of Mount Sinai. All that God has said, we will do. God promises Israel that if she will calibrate her life to God's word, He would make the promised land famously fertile. The land would be so fruitful, in fact, verse 5, that your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. That is, sowing and reaping would last essentially all year. You would just keep going on in this fertility, and God would protect the land from more than just famine. Verse 6, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Even though Israel was a narrow strip of land on the crossroads of the nations, the Israelites settled inland from the sea and would be protected there. It seems to be the idea, not that no army would ever pass through, but they wouldn't pass into the land to defeat them in any way. God promises that the nations are going to pass by, not stop to trouble the Israelites. And additionally, He would even cause the wild animals to migrate away from the land. This will be a place of peace. This will be a place of security. If you will heed My Word... Not if you'll pursue this particular business plan. Not if you will connect in in alliance with these nations. Not if you will strategize in this way or that. But if you will heed what I say. The result would be blessing. Freedom from enemies. Wild and wilder. Verse 7, you shall chase your enemies, in fact, and they shall fall before you by the sword. So again, of course, they will be in the land. But five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Marauding armies were a source of untold trouble in those days. The promise that God would enable Israel to chase them off was of immeasurable value in that day. God repeats for emphasis then, verse 9, please get this, Israel, get this. Heed my word, and verse 9, I will turn to you. 
and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. Plenty of food. Victory in the battlefield and victory in the field. Your storerooms, you'll have so much left over, you'll just get rid of the leftovers for what's new. I will do this. This is the covenant that I'm establishing with you if you will heed my word. He promises to bless Israel if she obeys. And now we come then to the pinnacle blessing. Verse 11. Here it is. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I will make my dwelling among you. I will tabernacle among you. God's glorious presence residing in the tabernacle among the camping people. It's a promise of ultimate value. God tabernacling with man. And as verse 12 indicates, this is a a nod to Eden restored. I will walk among you. And I will be your God and you shall be my people. The ultimate blessing is fellowship with God. This is the ultimate blessing and the programmatic theme of redemptive history. Ending in Revelation 21. God with His people. This is what it's all about. To be in His presence. To restore Eden. And God will do so eternally. But I will bring that about now. In your experience, I will walk with you. My presence will be with you. There is no greater blessing in this world. I will do this as you heed my word. Under the new covenant, this is realized, of course, in Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead who tabernacled among us, John chapter 1 and verse 14. It is indicated in the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ purchased by His blood, now forming a temple of the living God, Jesus taking up His residence through His Spirit in His people here. I will tabernacle among you. I will be with you. There is in the gathering of this church in a unique way with all of our sin and foibles and failures and weaknesses, there is in this gathering something that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. The presence of the Lord among His people dwelling with them as they worship in this Sabbath, this rest day, this place before the Lord. This is unique. This is unique. And so it would be for Israel. 4 verse 13, he says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. What a beautiful figure speech. God delivered Israel from slavery so she could stand tall and breathe the freedom of fellowship with God in the promised land in a way that she'd not been able to experience before. Not all forms of slavery in that day were oppressive. Some slaves enjoyed a better life than most free people who lived around them. And there's evidences of that in the ancient world. But slavery in the ancient world could be crueler than anything our nation has ever witnessed. And Israel suffered that sort of slavery. 
She was bowed down and beaten and bloodied, enslaved in Egypt. God says, I've delivered you. I've made you walk tall. I've made you stand up and breathe this air of freedom, of fellowship with me. And I will walk with you. We can only imagine the thrill of these words. Think of where Israel is right now, recently delivered from Egypt, knowing what it is to be beaten down in slavery, and saying now, God here, I've made you my people uniquely to walk with you, to fellowship with you, to know you, to live with you. What I ask you to do, what you must do in covenant with me, is heed my word. Know what I'm saying. Understand what I indicate to you and obey. Walk in trust and obedience with me. Do it my way. Do it my way. I love you. And I've delivered you for this joy. I wonder how much we value the privilege that we have through Christ to walk with God. I wonder how much we value it. The privilege of gathering in His name on the Lord's day to worship God and to grow in holiness. What a privilege is ours. We walk among the tallest people on earth, figuratively speaking, because we've been delivered from slavery. We've been delivered for this. To gather in Christ's name, to heed the word of God, to fellowship with Him, to walk with Him day in and day out. To be able to say of our God that He dwells among us, that He walks among us, and that He is with us. Leviticus 26 could end right here in the angelic choir singing Israel right to the threshold of heaven. This is beautiful. This is wonder. And amazement. But harsh reality sinks in. Human depravity is so pervasive and it is so hideous that people can look into the face of God and say, No, thanks. I'll do it my way. I don't need your presence, I don't need your help. I want to trust my word over yours because I know what's right for me. God knows that's the bent of our heart, every one of us. And He knows that's the bent of Israel's heart. So knowing this potential, realizing the horror and the destruction that comes outside fellowship with God, He warns His children that He will discipline them severely if they walk away from Him. The discipline is walking away from Him in and of itself. But he makes it clear and objective and says, this will be the result. And so we enter at verse 14 into something we'd really rather not talk about. That is something we need to see here, and that is the curses of God's law. We've seen the blessings in verses 3 to 13. At verse 14, we enter into a section of the curses. Verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments... And if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant. Go back to verse 3. That's what he's tying it to. This is the opposite of that. You're not listening to my word. 
You're breaking covenant with me. Then, verse 16, I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. That's the opposite of all that he said he would do in the blessing. We have here just general warnings. I should mention verse 17 as well. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. That's as clear as anyone could want it to be. That's the general point. Now specifically, God continues. There will be a curse on food. Verse 18. More specifically, and if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. The sevenfold seems to be an idea of intensity. Verse 19, and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Iron heavens, no rain. Bronze earth, dry, hardened earth that will not nurture seed no matter how hard they work. Next, specific wild animals. Verse 21. Then you will walk, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let your and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted, making travel all the worse in a land where wild beasts attack people. Third specific war, verse twenty three. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. The nations striking Israel in vengeance because they have broken covenant with God. That shall execute vengeance for the covenant, And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. The ovens were small. Each family, clan would have a single oven, but here we have ten sharing that oven because they're probably putting their dough together and sharing it, and then at the end, to be fair, weighing it out to one another. There will be famine, is clearly the point. And there will be military defeat and exile as well. More specifically, verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. What on earth is that about? The tiny walled cities of the ancient world were attacked 
When that happened, it was often easier for the enemy to starve out the inhabitants than to attempt to breach the walls. And in such situations, people could be reduced to this. It's horrific. Quick commercial break. I remember from my youth reading this text in church. This is back in the days before children's church. I was a little guy, five years old. And we went through this of parents eating their children. And my blessed father, when he got home and he had preached that message, he uh, chased after me with a fork. If you're wondering what influence that's had upon my life, I'm telling you this a half a century later. Scared the living daylights out of me. But he had a good sense of humor and it helped me develop a sense of humor. But I was only five. I've always been tainted ever since that. I still remember the moment coming after me with a fork. And he, of course, as he always does, laughed and laughed and laughed. And we enjoy it now to this day. But please, in my five-year-old mind, if any of you are hearing it that way, don't get that idea. They didn't pull out the ketchup, the fork and knife and eat their kids for no reason. But back to the seriousness of it. That's how horrible it was going to be. And what's even more horrible about this text is that every warning in it came true. People were reduced to hunger so far. They didn't kill their children, probably. They were probably already dead. But they were that far reduced to hunger that they became like animals. God doesn't stand here celebrating this. He warns his people of the realities. This was war in the ancient world. I will protect you, but this is a relationship. You must, you must covenant to keep my word. Verse 30, this theme continues and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you and I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas from their sacrifices and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation. And your city shall be a waste. Your land, the land I'm giving you, the promised land, will be a waste. God will utterly desecrate their idolatrous worship and leave Israel's towns in ruins. Again, it wasn't an empty threat. As one commentator puts it, these warnings were fulfilled with a fearful exactness in Israel's later history. Conquered peoples were commonly taken captive and forced to live in a foreign land. This was the war policy of the, many of the nations at that time, and Israel got in on the horror twice, scattered like winnowed chaff in the wind. While in captivity, verse 34, 
Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Every seven years the land was to be left fallow. Verse chapter 25, and when Israel failed to honor that principle, God would exact it for the land from them, sending them into captivity. That's the warning. Verse 36, and as for those of you who are left in the land after others are taken captive, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up, and those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. These are devastating prospects. And a lengthy enumerations of curses like this were common in covenants of the day. So Israel would have had a category for all of this. We really don't. But they would have had a category for this. When a king liberated a people and established a covenant with them, he would lay out the blessings that would flow to them and he would always emphasize the curses that would come to them if they broke fellowship with him. And so Israel has a category for this kind of conversation and God is saying this is the relationship that we will have. Much of this is not our time, our day. We are under another covenant. But there is a clear principle here. Let's make it clear. Let's grasp it as a church today. To walk away from the counsel of God is the most foolish and dangerous decision you can make in your life. The lie of Satan is that things will work out. You can do it your way and it will all be fine. The truth is, It doesn't work out. And God makes that very clear to us. Our way. We can choose, for instance, to love money. We can choose sexual immorality. We can choose the way of lying and deceit. We can choose the way of pride and self-promotion. It's all a path to immense pain. There's no good that comes from it. One, because God disciplines when we enter into such patterns. And two, because discipline is largely nothing more than the natural consequences of living life outside of God's blessing and protection. He gives us, two, the results of what we've chosen against His will. And it's never good. Choose to live life your way on your terms, spurning God's way, getting away from Him. And I guarantee your life will be filled with pain and regret. It will start to pile up. Now what happens next in the text is utterly unique and amazing. God has faithfully warned Israel of what life looks like when lived against His will and outside of fellowship with Him. But the next section of Leviticus 26 reveals the nature of God in bright lights. 
If Israel falls under the curses of the law, is there any hope? If this happens to them, these results, what then? All is lost? No. In verses 40 to 46, we see an offer of forgiveness through repentance. Verse 40, but if you confess, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery, that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Remember, not that God loses memory of it, but remember in the sense that God will act upon His covenant with Israel and once again bless her. After the sin and after the discipline, there is repentance, forgiveness, and restoration that is possible in God's economy. The consequences cannot be canceled, verse 43, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurn my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. So it's not like they repent and immediately He restores everything miraculously. They're still going to suffer. Yet, verse 44, for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will, rather, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. This is the agenda. I'm always here. Come back, repent and there will be restoration ultimately. Verse 46 ends the chapter in some sense, seems to virtually end the book. These are the statutes and the rules and the laws that the Lord made between Himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. There's um, a tremendous danger right now with us working through this chapter of Scripture. And so I warn, as we apply this passage to our lives, we must not make a simplistic transfer of the physical blessings attached to the Old Covenant directly to New Covenant believers. Don't make a simplistic application here. That is dangerous. Let me illustrate first and then come back to the point. Parents sometimes reward children for right behavior with money, with a treat, with a privilege, something like that. But it would be a really weird family dynamic if that continued on through adulthood. Danny, help me clear the dishes from the table here and I'll give you some ice cream. You know, if my mom said that, I'd be like, what? That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Don't do that with these promises and with these warnings. It would be strange if parents kept relating that way to their children in adulthood. And in some analogous way, God relates to the followers of Christ under a new covenant. In a sense, it's analogous to adulthood. 
Now that Jesus has fulfilled the law and paid its penalty, God's blessings upon us are not tied to the promised land. They're not tied to a priesthood, to a tabernacle. Clearly, they're not tied to a holy army. The blessings God grants to us under the new covenant are less physical in nature. I say this because there are some churches and media preachers in our day who claim that God wants all of His people to be fabulously wealthy, to have physical riches. And they claim that if you are not wealthy, it's because you have done something wrong or it's because you've not done something right. And so if you will just do this, God longs to pour out physical, material wealth upon you. Do you not see it here in Leviticus 26? This is what He wants to do in your life as well. That message is sounded so often. Know this. If you're hearing that kind of teaching, if you're listening to that on TV or on the radio, or you're picking this up somewhere, know that you're listening to a false teacher. Anyone who tells you that the followers of Jesus Christ, His intention, because you're His follower, is to make you wealthy, is selling you a lie. Now, He may want to make you wealthy, but not all of His people. And it's not connected necessarily to faithfulness to the Lord. The Apostle Paul, and I don't have time to any more than just summarize it, The Apostle Paul taught that we are to be content in all financial conditions. And he commended people who in their poverty lived faithfully before God. That's not the message that Jesus wants you all to be wealthy. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How incompatible is the teaching of Jesus with those that are saying you want to pile up the riches that God will give you by obedience according to our teaching. Our wealth as Christians is not found. And this is obvious, isn't it? It's not found in the fertility of the land. It's not found in our freedom from attack from wild animals. It's not found in our protection from invading armies. Our wealth is found in our union with Jesus Christ. In Him we are rich. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Spiritually, not necessarily physically. God has poured out immense wealth and riches and grace into the lives of many of us. And compared to this world, we have much wealth. But it's not because we're a follower of Christ as such. So much more could be said in defense of this point, but time forces me here simply to conclude. If you are listening to a preacher who is telling you that God wants all of his people to be wealthy, you are listening to a false doctrine, and you will find that some way or other, your money is supposed to end up in their pockets. Don't be fooled. Change the channel. Watch a ball game. Watch an infomercial. You'll be doing better. Number two, what is directly applicable to us today 
is the focus of verse 3. That is eternal. The focus of verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, that's what's at issue here. And the promise also goes with it, verse 11. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Through obedience to the word of God comes fellowship with him. The reason we gather for church on the Lord's Day, parallel to the Sabbath under the Old Covenant, is to worship God, to grow in our trust in His Word, to equip ourselves to obey His Word in our daily lives. That's the beauty of our gatherings as a church. That's the beauty of a church that honors God's Word and seeks to teach it all in faithfulness, as well as they're able in the short period of time we have on this planet. But at this point, there's a sobering thought again, isn't there? We fall short. We hear his word, but we don't obey it. Well, such humility is good for us to recognize that we break the law of God. And it points us ultimately to Christ as our answer, not to ourselves. His obedience, his standing as righteous son is given to us by faith in the gospel. And here again is why we gather to sing. Because Christ has done it. He has won the victory. His righteousness has been given to me and my standing is because of who He is. And so we sing. Now we need to remain in the fight against sin, but ultimately our trust is not in our obedience, but in the righteousness of Christ. And So the warning from Leviticus 26 that is very applicable to us under a new covenant is dangerous flirtation with the world doing things my way is the path to disaster eventually you can turn away from the truth and fall under the discipline of God so the mantra of our times is to do it my way but Jesus death to pay the penalty of our rebellion against God and our breaking of his law And Jesus' resurrection power redeems us to synchronize our lives to God's way. Ultimately, because our standing in righteousness is in Jesus, but progressively, day by day, Sunday by Sunday, we are being conformed into His holy likeness and enjoying greater degrees of fellowship with Him. This is the life that He's won for us. We've been liberated by Jesus to calibrate our lives to God's external Word and to His glorious worth. And may God help us that when the end draws near and we face our final hour, we can say with the saints of all the ages, I did it God's way. I did it God's way for my joy and for His glory eternally. While we received our offering today, laid down our gifts, did you see the phrase there? Let me die your people's death. What a beautiful phrase. Let me die your people's death.
That's not going to be a death that stands before God and says, aren't you proud of me? I did it my way. It will be standing before him and saying, I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and he died for me. And I lived in light of that truth, seeking to obey your word and conform my life to it as your child. I sought to do it your way. That's the beauty to which we've been redeemed. And to that end, let's plan to meet here again next week and seek the Lord together. To hear his word again. To seek to conform our lives to it. To continue to build each other up in the faith as we Sabbath by Sabbath, so to speak, gather in his presence. And let's plan also now as we leave this place to demonstrate with our lives the joy of walking in obedience to the living God and doing life his way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to think these thoughts, how redemptive they are, how evidence of our redemption. Lord, we pray that you will guide us as a church to seek sanctification through the purification of your word, which has steered us again today to remember that our lives count and that you hold us accountable. That there is a blessing to pursue and there is a curse to avoid. And ultimately, it causes us to return here yet again all of these truths to turn them to praise. For Christ has borne the curse of the law. He paid the penalty, the curse of the law, in our behalf. And in this we rejoice. For those living here today, their own way, according to their own plan, wondering why luck does not smile more upon them and wondering why life continues to fall apart around their ears. I pray, Father, by your grace that you would draw them to yourself and show them the beauty and the living power of your word, of your counsel, of your salvation in Jesus. This we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.